Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2264, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup for you today. John Pugliano, Nick Ferguson, Dan Oman, Michael Jordan, Gary Collins, Darby Simpson, Stephen Harris, and me, myself, and I, Jack Spirico, will all be answering questions for you today. Remember, if you'd like to submit a question for a show like today, you send an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put TSPC expert in the subject line. Then give me your question in one or two sentences. Tell me who it's for, which one of our expert council members. You can always find about all our council members by going to the Meet the Expert Council page, who they are and what they do. And uh, then give me your, your question and you know, then hit the return key a couple times. Give me details. Uh, more the better, but the question first, concise. That is the uh, number one way to get a response for myself or one of the council members, or sometimes both. What do we got lined up for you today? Well, John Pugliano is leading off today, but uh, he's not talking about money for once. No, he's talking about CB radio. John is also a ham radio enthusiast, a communications specialist. And I got a question on CB radio I thought he'd be perfect for, and he's going to take that one. I've got a question on propagation of comfrey for Nicholas Propagation Ferguson. I have a question about a gun owner's list in regard to local law enforcement for retired law enforcement officer Dan Oman. Uh, you get the straight scoop on that. And I have a thought or two on that as well. It goes way back, like almost 30 years, to how uh, you might end up on some sort of a list at the state level even that says, hey, this guy probably has a gun, and it would be an unconventional way. I'll add that at the end. We have water-to-honey ratios for mixing up bee feed when you're actually feeding honey to bees because you're going through the darth and you're trying to build up your brood from the bee whisperer himself, Michael Jordan. We have all about lectins and their effect on health from Gary Collins. I have thoughts on getting a new farmstead ready before you move in for doing some pastured poultry and other stuff from Darby Simpson. I have in and outs on battery-powered fans for off-grid human cooling from Stephen Electric Harris. And I have, from me, a lesson in abundance, business, and patience from, of all things, artichokes based on an email that I received from a listener that I thought was really cool and can apply to a hell of a lot more than what that one individual email was really all about. I thought it would be a good message to leave you with on a Friday. So we've got all that coming in just a moment. Before we get into that, let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support this show is by joining the Member Support Brigade. You go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. You can see all the companies you get discounts to, all the other benefits that you get. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more, again, just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And, you know, if you love this show and you want it to always be here, it's the number one way you can support what we do. The survivalpodcast.com, click on Members and sign up. So before the uh, council answers your questions, let's get some historical context in our life today. And we're going to look back uh, on this day in history, August 3rd to 1958. 1958, on August 3rd, the submarine known as Nautilus traveled under the North Pole. This was the first nuclear submarine. And uh, it, it went in 
into a dive just out of uh, Point Barrow, Alaska, and then traveled nearly a thousand miles under the Arctic ice cap to reach the top of the world. It then steamed on to Iceland, pioneering a new and shorter route from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Um, this sub was really the brainchild of U.S. Navy Captain Hyman Rickover, who was actually a Russian-born engineer who joined the U.S. Atomic Program in 1946. In 1947, he was put in charge of the Navy's nuclear propulsion program and began to work on an atomic submarine. Regarded as a fanatic by his detractors, Rickover succeeded in developing and delivering the world's first nuclear power submarine years ahead of schedule. Get this. In 1952, the Nautilus's keel was laid by pa President Harry S. Truman. On January 21st, 1954, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke a bottle of champagne across its bow as it was launched into the Thames River in Groton, Connecticut. Commissioned on September 30th, 1954, it first ran under nuclear power on the morning of January 17, 1955. Um... We laid the keel in 52 and christened the deck and sent it to sea in 54, two years. In other words, we used to get shit done. I mean, that's just a lesson here in of itself. I look at things like, you know, how long it took them to build the Empire State Building. It's unbelievable when you look at things like that and how long it takes us to do stuff today. Now, we do build more technology into things, and that's, but I think we, we really don't get things done the way we used to. The other thing is, I think, that understand the historical issue here. Americans have a short memory, and most of you guys that aren't in your mid-40s or older don't really remember the thing called the Cold War. This made the Cold War icy. you got to think about this. If you're the Soviet Union, and now the United States has an atomic-powered submarine that can go underneath the North Pole and pop out anywhere on the other side of it, and you happen to be on a lot of places on the other side of it, And if that submarine can launch a missile, and if that missile could be nuclear, what that really means, and that submarine can run silent, it can sit on the bottom of the ocean floor for days without moving or making a sound. And while the Soviets did develop a lot of technology that countered what we developed, we were, especially at this point in history, always one step ahead of them. And if you, if you look at it in the context of not through the American lens, you can see how much of the world would have looked at the U.S. as being the greater threat because we were the ones constantly doing this stuff. Now, we had our story that was for defense. But, what, I mean, I want you to think about if we didn't have anything like this today, we didn't have nuclear-powered submarines today, we didn't have submarines that could launch nuclear weapons today, uh, we had nuclear weapons and all the stuff that we had, you know, in the 1950s, And all of a sudden you found out that any country, I don't care who it was, even someone that was essentially an ally, now had a technology where they could take a submarine, sail underneath the ice caps of the North Pole, pop up off the coast of the United States and within seconds launch nuclear missiles, and we had no defense and no equivalent technology. How would you feel? Sometimes it's important when we look at historical context to take yourself outside of your side so that you can understand what's really going on in the world. Even if your side's philosophy is correct, it is beneficial to understand the other side's view. Just some thoughts on this day in history. And with that, let's go ahead and dig right on into it. Up front, I've got a question for John Pugliano again, this time on CB Radio. John, take it away. 
Hello, TSP listeners. Today we're going to mix things up a little bit. Instead of answering an investing or financial question, I'm going to talk about antennas. Specifically, Brian in East Texas has a question about using CB radios. Brian is trying to set up an inexpensive means of backup communication that can go house to house and cover an area of maybe just a few miles. I think Citizens Band Radio is a good choice for something like that because the equipment is simple to use. It's readily available, particularly if you want to look for something inexpensive at a flea market or some kind of used equipment. It's very durable. You don't need a license. As long as you're talking about line-of-sight communication, it obviously would depend on the terrain and what buildings and obstructions are in the way, but generally a very localized communication of between a quarter mile and up to maybe two miles, I think could easily be attained with a Citizens Band Radio. The other good thing about Citizens Band Radio is you have 40 different channelized frequencies to select from, and the bandwidth to do that is very minimal. I think it only takes up about 440 kilohertz. You're also dealing with fairly small power requirements. The FCC regulates the AM emission on those to only 4 watts. And that amount of power level is not only safe to use, but it's also very energy efficient. So your power requirements are are fairly modest. Now, specific to Brian's question, his idea is to mount a vertical antenna on the rooftop of the houses. And he's trying to do this the most economical way he can. And so when it comes to selecting antennas, his question is, would a homemade rigid copper J-pole antenna be better than an off-the-shelf stainless steel whip antenna? Well, Brian, my short answer is no, it wouldn't be better. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it would be worse. And I think that's because you're conflating a a couple different topics here. You mentioned a J-pole antenna. And a J-pole antenna is a very effective and compact antenna for a lot of reasons, but primarily because of the way it's designed. It's a directional antenna that will allow you to have gain in a particular direction and to not use a ground plane. And that can be very advantageous if you're operating at higher frequency levels because the bottom line on antenna design is that the radiating element of the antenna, in order to get it to resonate at the proper frequency, we generally design those to be a quarter inch of the wavelength where we're operating. That's achieved by having your antenna length being equal to a quarter of the wavelength of the frequency you're operating at. So at higher frequencies, you have shorter wavelengths and therefore shorter antennas. That's why the antenna on your cell phone is very small. It operates at a very extremely high frequency, while the antenna system for an AM radio station is going to be very long because our commercial AM radio stations operate at a much lower frequency, which therefore has a much longer wavelength. So the overall dimension of your antenna is 100% correlated to that wavelength of the frequency you're operating on. Now the ham radio frequencies where people use J-pole antennas are generally 2 meters and above. So that's roughly a frequency of at least 144, 145 megahertz. That means that the height of a J-pole antenna designed for the 2 meter frequency is only going to be about, oh, I don't know, under 2 feet long maybe a foot and a half. But in your case, you're talking about citizens band radio that has a frequency of about 27 megahertz, which means that the wavelength is 11 meters. And at 11 meters, that's approximately, you know, 33 feet. 
So an antenna that's a quarter of that wavelength is going to put you at around eight and a half or nine feet. So when you construct a JPO antenna design to fit a CB radio frequency, by the time you add up the lineal length of your main radiator and the reflective radiator and all the couplings, you're talking about probably 35 feet of copper pipe. That would not only be pretty expensive to construct when compared to a standard stainless steel whip antenna, but also think about the weight. You've got to mount that on top of a roof. That would require some pretty significant hardware to secure it properly. So for those reasons, just from the practicality of the weight and the installation and then the cost of all that copper pipe, to me just doesn't make sense when you can go out and find a stainless steel whip antenna for probably, you know, about $20 locally, a lot less than that if you can find it used at a flea market. The disadvantage is if you have to have something like that shipped in from Amazon, you're going to probably end up paying, you know, $40 or $50 just because of the shipping. I mean, these things are very light, but the shipping cost is, is going to kill you because you're talking about shipping a nine-foot tube. But in any case, that stainless steel whip, is still going to be much more cost-effective and easier to mount and much more simpler to set up than the J-Pole because we haven't even gotten into all the aspects of once you actually build the J-Pole, you still have to have it tuned. So while J-Pole antennas are great for higher-frequency ham radios, I don't think it's something you want to use specifically for the CB. Now, the other thing to consider is to remember that an antenna really consists of two elements. One is the radiating element that we traditionally think of as the antenna. And then the other side of that is the ground plane that radiating element is pushing against. You can kind of think of it as a positive and a negative terminal on a battery. When a CB radio is mounted in a car for mobile operations, that ground plane or that negative part of the antenna is the metal frame and body of the automobile. In your application, since the antenna is not going to be portable mounted on a car or a truck, you need to take into consideration the ground plane side of your antenna construction. And really the easiest way to do that, I think, is to come up with some type of a dipole antenna. If you're not familiar with that, you should Google that phrase. That's dipole, D-I-P-O-L-E. And essentially when we're talking about a dipole that would be constructed for CB radio, it could be constructed of just two pieces of wire, both about nine feet in length. As I mentioned, the real critical factor to building an antenna is to make sure that it's resonant at the frequency where you want to use it. You want it to be a quarter inch of your wavelength, which in your case, CB radio, is going to be roughly about nine feet. So your overall dimension is only going to be 18 feet. That could be mounted vertically or horizontally, or you could experiment really contorting that in a number of different directions. In ham radio, two-wire antenna systems are generally set up in inverted V-type fashions where you have a pole in the center and the elements coming down to the ground in an inverted V fashion, or sometimes they're constructed like an L. If people are limited in space, they oftentimes will just let that other ground element dangle in the air or be draped over the shingles of their house. I think the beauty of using a simple dipole-type construction of an antenna is that it can be readily adapted to whatever type of environment or constraints you may have on your property or at your house. So here's what I would suggest. Do a little research on antenna construction 
specifically around dipoles. Then just use some common wire that you have laying around the house and experiment with the different lengths and the different configurations of what maybe is going to be likely for you to use on your property and in the houses in your community. It doesn't have to be elaborate. You're not going to be constructing an antenna that's going to stay up in the air for 10 years. This is just something you can go in your backyard with and fool around with these different lengths of wire that are going to be about 9 feet long. The best way to know if something works is to try it out. So build the antenna, transmit with it, see if anybody can hear you, make sure your signal's getting out, experiment with it in different locations throughout your neighborhood or the community that you want to set these up in. And once you know generally what is a very inexpensive and easy design for you to construct, then you can start worrying about the actual structural part of it as to, you know, how thick of wire you actually have to use, what type of insulating materials you might need, and then specifically how you're going to mount it on each of the individual houses where you're going to put these up. So give that a try. Start out with the lowest cost, simplest design you can come up with, see if it works, and then improve from there. Brian, thanks for your question. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Next up, I have a question on comfrey propagation uh, and seasonal timing for Nick Ferguson. Nick, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com with a quick answer for one of the listeners. And Wayne asks, question for Nick Ferguson, can I split my comfrey roots up now and get another harvest before my Michigan winter gets here Details, I'm in southeast Michigan, and I have three comfrey plants in the ground and one sadder one in a pot. Is it too hot now to split their roots up and expect them to thrive before winter? Maybe I'll just have to water them more. What about other perennial herbs I have in pots? I think they'll do better in the ground, but I don't know if this is a good time to transplant them. Thank you both for all the good you're doing. Love the show, Jack Wayne from Michigan. All right, good question, man, and the quick short answer is that, I don't know, maybe, probably, maybe not. Uh, they'd probably be just fine, but I have no idea what your temperatures are like, how brittle your climate is, how hot and harsh the rest of your summer, or how short the rest of the year is going to be for you, you know, how soon uh, your freezing weather gets there. So... I don't know if I'm going to be able to give a specific yes or no answer. So instead, I'm just going to give you some general tips for propagating comfrey and hopefully equip you with enough knowledge to be dangerous. Because let's admit it, having a big pack of black cat fireworks is boring. Unless you're a nine-year-old with a lighter and cement hills that need destroying. In that situation, you're a nine-year-old with enough knowledge to be dangerous and have a heck of a lot of fun. All right, I know everyone and their uncle says comfrey is impossible to kill. Well, let me tell you, I can do it. So I guess that makes me a highly skilled plant propagator since I'm capable of the impossible. So depending on how good you are, you might also be just as capable as me. <laughs> With that said, uh, the first thing that you should know is that the best time to be dividing plants for propagation is early winter as soon as everything goes dormant. So as soon as those comfrey plants are going dormant and all their leaves die back to the root crown, that's actually a good time to dig them up, separate the roots out, and make new cuttings for immediate planting. And this way, the plant has time to heal the root breaks and develop new growth buds to be ready to pop up in spring. 
can you do it now? Well, you probably can, but I don't think you're going to gain much of an advantage by making the divisions in what I'm assuming is late summer for you. Generally, summertime is not a good time to do any plant propagation. The best thing and the most profitable strategy for propagating that comfrey is probably just to wait until spring. If you do that, dig those comfrey crowns up, plant the whole big crown with as much root attached. You're going for the largest plant with the most roots attached. Don't divide it up. Don't cut them up into little tiny pieces. Get that big mass of roots planted in at least a five-gallon nursery pot filled with good potting mix. Place that pot with the comfrey plant in it somewhere that it'll get early morning light and shade in the afternoon. So that'll probably be someplace, probably up against a building that has southeast exposure. And that way the comfrey is getting the most useful light of the day and it'll be protected from the afternoon heat. The the comfrey actually can't process the light and photosynthesize once it gets really hot. So have an afternoon sun on it when it's hot really isn't doing the plant any good. We're trying to optimize this. So we want to keep that comfrey plant cool with morning sun so it can make use of that. Fertilize it regularly with your fertilizer of choice. Personally, for ease of use, to make sure I actually did it, I just use a packaged fertilizer that's easy to mix like fish emulsion with kelp or just plain old generic blue synthetic stuff. And you're in propagation mode. This doesn't need to be uber organic and special. We just want to push that plant to grow as much leaf and root matter as possible. You're going for optimal growing conditions. And then periodically through that year, you can just reach into that loose potting mix and pull off a finger-sized root from the main cluster, maybe two big roots, let it recover for a month or two, and then do it again. Every time you pull off a root... Plant it in another pot just like the first one, and pretty soon you're going to have several pots laid out with comfrey growing as fast as it possibly can. When fall rolls around and you're having cool days and some rain is keeping the soil uh, consistently moist, you can plant them all in the ground and save that potting mix for the next year. And honestly, that's one of the fastest and easiest ways to ensure you're propagating that stuff as fast as you possibly can. The larger you can keep those plants, the faster they will grow. Yes, you can cut the roots up into hundreds of little pieces, but you're going to have hundreds of tiny, weak, comfrey plants that will need more attention and that won't grow nearly as fast as a large, established plant will. You'll end up ahead of the game if you follow the plan I laid out. Oh, and be careful. The comfrey will send roots out of the bottom of the pot, and that's helpful if you want the comfrey to grow there. Because when you go to move the pot, you'll find you've made a comfrey propagation tractor. It's not helpful if it's in your wife's ornamental flower bed where, and I quote, I don't want that ugly comfrey growing there. (laughs) So be forewarned, don't make a comfrey tractor where you don't want one. So I hope that gives you a good game plan for propagating that comfrey. I'd wait on chopping the plants up to get the most out of them and to ensure that you don't kill them. Put them in great big pots or... Heck, you can even put them in the ground in potting soil, keep them optimally fertilized, and just reach in to pull off sections of root while leaving the plant mostly intact. The larger the root piece, the faster it'll grow and produce more roots, which means it'll produce more plants faster, and that's the name of the game. Pretty soon, you'll be swimming in the stuff. 
All right, I hope that helps, man. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. And if you want to find out more about me or check out more of my stuff, you can go to HomegrownLiberty.com. All right, guys, do good things. Good stuff from Nick Ferguson, as always. Uh, next up, I have a question for retired law enforcement officer Dan Oman. Um, this is a question about a gun list, something where you could check and see if a person was armed, and, and specifically related to local police departments. Uh, we always hear about gun registries and their dangers and stuff like that. So um, the question basically, is there any truth that I'll let Dan take it, and I'll give you an antidote of something that happened to me when I was a teenager that I found very interesting and kind of fits in with what Dan, Dan's saying here, <clears throat> excuse me, what Dan's saying here, you know, over 30 years later. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys. Hey guys, this is Dan Oman back from a long hiatus from the expert council. I had a personal life crisis just kind of explode on me very unexpectedly. This crisis resulted in me having to divert my bandwidth to other areas of my life right now, but I am back. So Jesse in Connecticut sent in a question several months ago. Jesse, I sincerely apologize for not getting to it sooner, but here we go now. Jesse's question is, is there a, quote, gun list or database of residents and firearms that local agencies maintain? And here are the details Jesse wrote in. I occasionally get lunch from a place frequented by police officers. While waiting for my order, I overheard an incident on one of their radios. Someone was pulled over, and the officer on the scene requested they check the motorist on the, quote, gun list. The short answer, Jesse, is legally there is no gun list, and there is no state or national database that local officers can access. However, there are a few things that I'll get into here in a second that could loosely be considered a gun list, so... Let's get into that. So first off, we have in-house reporting software. Within each police department, they have reporting software where all the incidents and accident reports go into. And we also have something called field interview cards. So this is where if an officer encounters someone that maybe there isn't a criminal offense being occurred, there's no crime being reported, but there's some suspicious activity, something that doesn't really warrant the generation of an incident report, then the officer can do what's called a field interview report, which allows the officer to still put in someone's name, date of birth, address, phone number, you know, all the contact information, as well as their height, weight, physical description. And whether they're armed with a firearm or a knife, all that information can be put into the report. Data fields can be populated to indicate gun possession, so a database search can be conducted later for guns or any other type of weapon. The only way that you're going to be put into a software program like this is if you encounter the police and have a firearm or another weapon on you at the time of the encounter, and the officer puts this in the report. Another thing that could be loosely considered a gun list is the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, registry, where in several states, usually the less gun-friendly states, they will put in their Department of Motor Vehicle records whether someone is a concealed carry permit holder or not. So when you get pulled over by law enforcement and they will do a uh, search on your driver's license and your uh, license plate on your vehicle, it will come back on the officer's computer in their police car whether you have a concealed carry permit or not. 
this technically isn't really a gun list, and officers can't do a search just for people who have a concealed carry permit. They can only run the individual and see if they have a concealed carry permit, if that makes sense. Then there is the ATF gun database, but this is not a searchable list for law enforcement where an officer can just go to a computer terminal at the police department or in their car or something like that and just do a search and, and see who pops up on a list. It doesn't work that way. So when you buy a firearm from someone who has a, an FFL, a federal firearms license, they require the buyer to fill out certain paperwork as far as all their contact information, etc., and the, the FFL holder has to maintain that paperwork and send the data to the ATF. But law enforcement only has access to this information when doing what's called a gun trace. So if I'm working at a homicide or an armed robbery and there's a gun left behind at the scene and we don't know who owned the gun, uh, we can collect the gun as evidence and then run the serial number through the ATF. And it's not an instant program. It, it takes some time to get the information back. But uh, the ATF can send us the information on who was the person that last legally transferred the firearm. So the last person to fill out paperwork on that firearm, it can be traced back to them. So again here, this is not a searchable database where an officer can run someone's name and date of birth and find out what guns they own or pull up a list of gun owners. It's just a trace on a certain firearm, tracing it back to who purchased it. And again, there has to be circumstances. It has to be part of a criminal investigation, and it's certainly not instant. And the last thing to consider here with, quote, gun list is that perhaps gun is an acronym for something. In government, especially in law enforcement and military, there is an acronym for everything. Like, everything has an acronym. So there is a chance that gun list, like G-U-N, is an acronym for something else. I don't know. Just going out on a limb there with that one. So, Jesse, in conclusion, while there is no official gun list, there are some database records that can be accessed, which could act as a potential gun list. But in most cases, it would only be for people who have had a firearm-related contact with law enforcement at some point. So if you go out and buy a Lady Wesson 38 revolver for your wife, you're not going to be on any kind of gun list. I hope that helps, guys. And again, if you have any law enforcement-related questions, I am back and ready to answer them. So here's my story, and I don't know if any sort of procedures or processes or regulations or rules would have changed this over the years, but I had to be probably 17 years old. I was driving my first car, which was a uh, Pontiac Grand Prix, a low-head sled with a 455 Rochester Quadrajet carburetor, and we were on uh, Highway 81 in Pennsylvania, me and a buddy of mine. We were rolling along in, uh, in this Pontiac. And, you know, that's a big motor with, with some big carburetors. So every once in a while you might open it up, and I did. And I got pulled over doing, I think, like 76, 77 miles an hour. And this is before the big shift to 65-mile-an-hour speed limits. So the speed limit was 55. So I was well and above over uh, the speed limit. And it was a Pennsylvania State Police officer, a uh, guy probably in his early 30s, was really professional, really nice, um, and, you know, this is before we had a lot of this kind of animosity between civilians and law enforcement. I think everybody got along a lot better back then, and there were less problems on both sides. And So, I mean, I wasn't that, you know, I didn't want to tick it, but I wasn't that worried about it. And I said, uh, you know, well, what's the problem, sir? And he tells me, and I'm, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't mean to. And 
he looks at me, and I'm just a kid, and I'm being really nice. And he, he could tell me right away I was heading toward a, a warning on this. He, he said, basically, as long as as long as you don't have any warrants or anything like that, Mr. Spierka, we won't have any problems today. And That might have been the first time somebody ever called me Mr. Spierko. Honestly, I'm not sure, but it may have been. Uh, not counting school teachers. I don't think that counts for officially actually calling you Mr. Anything and meaning it that way. And uh, so he, I wait and I hear everything come back and, you know, there, there are no problems or nothing. And I heard this dispatcher lady say at some point in this response, status armed. Now I'm 17 years old. There were no concealed carry permits in, in Pennsylvania. I certainly don't have a gun on me. And he comes back, and he doesn't act like nothing happened at all. He's pretty cool about it. He hands me my, my license back, and he gave me a written warning, not a ticket. And he was about to leave, and against my gut, I just was curious and wanted to know, and there was no reason not to, you know. And I said, sir, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. I said, um, did that lady on your radio say that I was armed? And he said, yes, she did. And I said, I don't really understand that. He said, do you have a hunting license? I said, well, yes. He says, well, there's certain things like that, that if a person has a hunting license, then we assume they have access to a firearm, and it's at least potential that you could be armed. But I didn't see any reason to worry about that tonight. And I said, okay, thank you. And he said, go on about your way, and I did. So I think there are more ways that local law enforcement might intuit that you would at least have access to a firearm than just a conventional list. Now, I don't know if there's you know new regulations or something that makes that more available or maybe perhaps less available or different states have different um, policies on this, but I can tell you this would have been about 1988. And that is exact, I can remember, because, you know, you're a kid. This is the first time I ever got pulled over by a cop that wasn't Jack Harley, which was our local cop that pulled me over all the time to mess with me. And, and like, we knew his family and he knew ours and it wasn't a problem. Like, this is the first time I got pulled over by a strange cop, so it's kind of etched into my brain. And I, to this day, I remember hearing that lady say, status armed, and thinking, what the hell? And I guess it, it makes reasonable sense that, you know, if you have a hunting license you probably have some access to some sort of a weapon. And as a law enforcement officer, while I'm big on civil liberties and privacy, etc., I can see where, as a law enforcement officer on a dark highway in the middle of the night with two guys in a car, uh, I might want to know that if anything seems a little off at least, that there's potential for additional problems so I can make sure that I take steps for my own personal safety. It's a balance. And I kind of wanted to say that because... I, I do have a big problem with a lot of stuff that goes on in law enforcement today. I do see a lot of cops behaving in ways that I find to be completely indefensible. Uh, I've seen some things that are just just completely reprehensible. And when we, when we cover those, I, I rail against law enforcement. But I do believe the vast majority are doing the best job they can under difficult circumstances. And I think we need to remember that. And by working with them in these situations, and that doesn't mean being stupid and like talking when you should shut your mouth, but by working with them instead of against them in these situations, generally encounters go pretty well. Uh, i got to tell you, I have a bit of a lead foot, and I've been pulled over a lot in my life. <laughs> and and I, got, 
I got two tickets in my life, and one I really deserved, and the other one, the guy, as soon as you, you know, the guy that looks like he just came out of a, a Ranger platoon yesterday, you're getting a ticket with that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, I got one here for Michael Jordan on feeding bees. <laughs> Hey, this is your buddy, your pocket companion of beekeeping, Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from AB Friendly Company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Hey, this question comes from Jason McBride. He wants to know when feeding bees honey to brood up for a summer uh, Darth feed, how much water are you mixing? And you, can you give me details for that? Uh, well, Jason, um, there's a lot that kind of goes with, uh, you got a couple different things in there. You're talking about Darth, Brood Up, and Summer. Those are all kind of different things. So uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, bees will drink their weight in water each day. And if a big hive of 80,000 bees were to drink 24 pounds of water per day, that's approximately three gallons of water per hive per day. To feed the bees, you need not just water. Uh, you need a sugar supply, which could be the honey. Corn sugar, cane sugar is what most people use. There's uh, fruit juices. There are many things to get a sugar supply. Uh, water, and that's what you're talking about is how to mix the water. Uh, water supplies, you know, are like bird baths, water station, uh, board line feeders on the front of your beehive. Those are some different ways uh, for some bees to get water and make it so you can get the bees in there so they're not swimming. Uh, you will need pollen source or a protein source to get the nurse bees to produce wax, royal jelly, and to make bee bread to feed the brood. So when you're talking about uh, feeding honey to brood up for the summer, you know, you need, you need, you need the sugar, the water, and all the stuff. So there's a lot of things to make, to feed bees. Uh, there's two ways to make all this happen. There's always the first way, and it's not cheap, and it gets the job done, and it's used by a lot of people because it's fast and simple. It's already pre-prepped, and you just buy, uh, Bee Pro Feed, uh, from a vendor. I mean, there's, uh, patties, Bee Pro Pollen, uh, Bee Pro Liquid Mix, uh, Instant Mix, uh, HBH, and all kinds of stuff that you can just buy. Uh, you know, and, and you can just put it out there, feed the bees, and, you know, they're going to be feeding, and they're going to be getting good nutrients and, and pollen to start making that brood pattern that you're talking about for, I believe you're probably talking for your early summer to get the brood filled up, coming out of Darth, and uh, there's not there's not really any nectar flowing yet, and you want the brood to build up, and you want to use honey for your base. So you can also... Uh, uh, you know, make it. It's you know, you can make HBH. Uh, HBH stands for Honey Bee Health. Uh, for those that don't know, that's that's uh, what a lot of companies even call HBH for feed. You can make uh, your own. It's a good way to get water and sugar supply to your bees on a more natural level. I mean, in today's weakening met metabolic and immune systems in the bees. Many people like myself, such like the Fat Bee Men, Don Kutchman, uh, Greg Burns from Natural Image Farms, uh, Michael Bush, writer of The Practical Beekeeper and uh, Bush Farms, and uh, Phil Chandler of The Barefoot Keeper from the UK. We can all agree that you need to feed your bees, and the, needs, and, the, and the need of the feed 
basically needs to fulfill the need of the bee and help the bee's health and growth as well-being and just not feed them to, to use them. So uh, from herb use and furthering basic metabolic processes and mind growth, herbs like chamomile, yarrow, dandelion, valerian, stinging nettle, oak bark, spearmint, and lemongrass are, are typically used in a lot of these formulas that you even get from like bee pro feedings or honeybee health feedings. So you can, you can do all that yourself and then mixing that with a good sugar like honey and spring water, you can make a great bee feed tea. And the bees, you know, this helps with their bodies and minds and you're using that honey and even adding things like, uh, Oh, lichen gran granules for natural emulsification for the for the proteins to help brain and liver function. I mean, you can add a lot of good natural things to it. I mean, if you want to look up some more of those types of natural teas and feeding, you can look up Spike Nard Farms and look up BT or uh, the Fat Bee Man's HBH. Uh, you know, you can see more on that. And that's using more natural herbs for feeding and gearing up to build up bee health. For that, uh, but when you feed, you need protein. Uh, most uh, protein is pollen, and pollen patties are to are, are placed mostly in the hives. Uh, others get buckets of bee pollen or protein and put them in uh, feeder units outside, away from the hives. But the best natural pollen is to probably, uh, if you ever get a chance to see cattails growing when they got the big yellow tops for seed and pollen. Uh, Man, this is a great easy way to get a lot of good natural feed and pollen is take a two liter bottle and cut the bottom out and then put a plastic bag on the other end over the, the neck of the bottle with a rubber band. And then when you go find lots of cattails with the big bright yellow pollen, you go out there, you cut about two inches below that yellow cattail so you have a stock to hold on. So you cut that, turn that stock upside down and put it in that two liter bottle and just shake it around and all that pollen from that cattail falls down and fills up that plastic bag and then you can vacuum seal them and freeze them for later and keep them for up to a year and it makes nice uh, natural bee pollen easy to feed easy to collect and, and that's that's for brood rearing so on your question you're, you're talking about uh, when feeding honeybees to brood up for the summer you need you need water a good water source uh, to make that happen now, uh, I think for a good water source, you need to have like a, a soaker hose, uh, just kind of running that the bees will have. Put everything about 20 to 50 feet away from the beehive. Water fountains, uh, you know, everybody uses bird baths, you know, anything that's going to keep it out of your neighbor's pool. Uh, so you're talking at the beginning, you're asking about feeding bees honey to brood up for the summer. If you're using honey, you're gonna have to, you can just add water to it, 50-50 mix, and move it down. And if there's no pollen and stuff, you need to get a pollen patty or something in there to make that to brood up for the summer. Um, I think that if you take, like, like I said, a mason jar and just fill it half full with honey and water, warm water and shake it, you'll make water feed. Uh, but you, I would make watering stations and feed the bees the honey straight. Just feed the honey straight to them. And put like a location of like a water fountain 20 feet away by a pollen feeder, right, station. And, uh, you know, that's just basically like taking your two-liter bottle and hanging it sideways so the bees can go in the little neck and go in. And then, you know, water and stuff doesn't get in there to get to the pollen. Uh, 
I put some links in for Jack, one Spikenard Farms, and I'll put one in for uh, the Fat Bee Man and stuff like that so you can get bee feeding tips and recipes to see what, what you're looking at and stuff like that. But if you really want to learn about honeybee nutrition, uh, look up Randy Oliver. He, I think he has like a four-point four point, uh, series uh, called uh, Honeybee Nutrition by Andy Roll- uh, Randy Oliver, and he's been published in uh, a Bee Source magazine with this stuff. I mean, it's a great read if you want to know it. But I think if you want to, you know, get into nutrition, read that. Look for better ways to feed your bees. And if you're looking for brooding and, and going up with honey, just feed them the straight honey. Put a water source out there and see if you can get some natural pollen. And look up some stuff on YouTube on making pollen patties, many different kinds, some with mint and uh, tea tree oil to help with mites and grease patties and all kinds of stuff, man. But uh, for brood, you're going to need protein. And I think water stations at 20 to 50 feet away are a lot better than trying to get water straight into the hive. So I am, I'm the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Uh, look for it from a small cottage company and help sport new growth and help all of us get better. And always help your fellow man. Because one day, you're probably going to need help too. All right, good stuff from Michael. I did... Uh Get a really high gain uh, in that one that he sent me. He must have had his microphone gain way, way, way up. I, I dropped it way, way, way down. There's still a little bit of uh, uh, peaking in there. I did the best I could with it for you guys. We'll uh, talk to Michael about backing down the microphone gain just a little bit in the future there. And, uh, hey, we've got two expert council members already with some production value. Added to their thing. We got the bad boys from Dan Omen and the bees buzzing from Michael Jordan. We don't have that on the next one, but we do have a good call. This one is uh, with uh, Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, on selecting a battery for your car. Charles, take it away. What's up, everybody? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes from Zach. Zach wants to know, what information do I need when making a purchasing decision on batteries for a vehicle? Details. I got a Toyota Avalon and a Dodge Ram that are needing new batteries. I went to Battery Source, a battery place in the southeast, and they showed me a range of options, but I just had to trust their salesman's suggestion because I know very little about cold cranking amps and what else to look for in a battery. I choose the Platinum because it has the best coverage for warranty, but that may not be a good choice. What specs should I look for? What specs actually don't matter? What's a good price to pay? How long should a battery last? What's a marine battery? And what happens to my battery when I leave the light on overnight compared to leaving the radio on for a week? Zach, you snuck in like six questions, man. Good job. So let's start with that last one. What happens to the battery when I leave a light on overnight versus the radio on for a week? That's a super broad question. You left a light on. Was it the headlights? Was it an LED dome light? So those would have two very different answers. A front headlight's going to kill the battery much faster than a tiny LED light. And guys, radios are a huge current draw for a uh, for a vehicle electrical system. Luckily today, most modern cars have a power retention feature where when the module that controls that kind of stuff sees that the voltage is low in the vehicle, 
it'll actually shut it down. I, of course, would never trust that to happen, but that's what's supposed to happen. So let's get into this buying batteries for your car thing. This is one of those situations that people do, what, every three years, five years, six years. That's kind of the typical for how long batteries will last. And oftentimes that's going to a shop, the shop telling you your battery's kind of weak or dying. They tell you, hey, it'll be a hundred and something bucks to replace. And they only have one selection. So you buy the one that they have. So there's really not a whole lot of choice involved in that scenario. But actually buying a battery for your car is a pretty easy decision. The number one factor really when picking a battery for your car is going to be the battery size. Batteries are categorized in different groups based on length, width, and height. And that's really the first thing that you look at because if you buy a battery that doesn't fit, well, you bought a battery that doesn't fit. It's either too big or it's too small. And whatever mechanism the manufacturer uses to hold that battery down doesn't fit. Out of my three cars, one has a little sleeve that slides over the battery and the top flips open. One is like encased in this plastic housing where you're not going to fit any bigger of a battery than the manufacturer put in there. And then my other car, you actually do have some flexibility on space, but there's really only one size that fits perfectly in the car. So our first decision is going to be size. We need to make sure we're getting the right group number for our vehicle so that it fits. We also need to make sure that the terminals are in the right spot. Is the positive terminal on the left side of the battery? On the right side of the battery, do you have your terminals on the front side of the battery? Those are going to be all very important things. You can get the best battery in the world, and if your cables don't reach, it doesn't really matter because you're not hooking it up anyhow. Or I should say you're not hooking it up how the manufacturer intended, so you'll have to rig it up if you're into that. I'm not super into that with, with batteries unless it's an absolute must or an absolute emergency. So those are the things you need to consider first. You need to buy the battery that actually physically fits in your car. Because we're limited with size, we're kind of limited in a lot of ways with storage capacity, with cold cranking amps. So I pulled your car up on Batteries Plus website. I have no love or hate for Batteries Plus. It was just the first battery company I thought of. And they list a handful of options. They list the standard Duracell battery, which is a Group 24F, 650 cold cranking amps, has a 24-month free replacement warranty, and costs you $112.99 plus an $18 core charge. Probably very similar to what Toyota put in your Avalon from the factory. Moving up, you have the Duracell Gold battery, which is same size, 24F, and it has 725 cold cranking amps. Cold cranking amps are going to refer to the number of amps that that 12-volt battery can deliver at zero degrees for 30 seconds without that voltage dropping below right about 7, 7.2 volts. So the higher that cold cranking amp number, the greater the starting power of the battery. Now, to me, there's not a big delta in cold cranking amps between 650 and 725. I almost feel like if you just let the car warm up, you'd probably be able to start the car about the same. But the big thing for me on that Duracell Gold battery is that it's a 36-month free replacement, so we're getting 12 extra months, and it's 65-month prorated. So after that first 36, they probably do a calculation and give you a percentage of your money back, or you have to pay a little bit to get that battery replaced. And for 14 bucks more, if nothing else, if it was the exact same battery, that's probably worth an extra year of free replacement. Now they also have two options for AMG or absorbent glass mat batteries. So this one is an 
840 cold cranking amp battery. It's also a starting and cycling battery, which means it's basically a deep cycle battery. The standard car batteries technically are just starting batteries, and then the vehicle runs off the charge of the alternator through the battery. So this is going to be a battery that's going to have the capacity to start the vehicle, as well as more storage capacity for draining the battery voltage down. But the big but here is it's 300 bucks. Of course, it does come with a 60-month replacement warranty, which is cool, but for $300, ouch, I almost think I would spend the $126, get the three-year warranty, 65-month pro rate, buy a really good set of jumper cables, the kind that you can't hook up backwards, because I've seen a lot of cars screwed up with people jump-starting it backwards. Yes, it does happen. Yes, people in the industry do it, and yes, they should know better. Also, make sure everyone that is going to be in the car or driving the car knows how to use those jumper cables. I would buy those. I would buy a jump start pack. I think Jack talked about one not too long ago. I'd throw that in my car and then I'd still have a bunch of money left over. Maybe even consider buying an extra battery, especially if you have the Stephen Harris battery backup system. Maybe adding one that fits into your car as part of your system. Then if your car's dead at the house, you just swap your batteries out, take that in and get it replaced and bring it on back. So there's way better options, I think, especially for your Toyota Avalon, than spending 300 bucks on a battery that you may never really see the true benefit of. When it comes to your truck, it may be a little different story. Maybe you're towing a trailer or a camper and want to run your truck off of that for longer. Maybe then buying a deep cycle battery does make sense. You can do all the research you want on the internet, and you'll find that there's a lot of experts out there that have opinions and it's funny how the experts seem to have opposite opinions there's a lot of talk about storage capacity especially when you get into the deep cycle batteries all that can be important but the most important thing i really believe is that your battery has to fit in the car properly your truck might have some flexibility with that where you can actually go up to a battery that's a little bit bigger in physical size has a little bit more storage capacity but odds are your passenger cars especially the newer passenger cars right the last 10, 15 years, probably 20 years, you're going to be limited by space and the positioning of your terminals to make sure that they hook to your battery properly. So guys, that may not really be the answer everyone was looking for. You might have wanted that 25-point list of all the really important things to check when you're buying a vehicle battery. But truthfully, again, the most important thing is really that it fits in the car properly. Consider the warranty. Consider how expensive it is. If it's 10 bucks more like the one we talked about for the Avalon, 15 bucks more, Get the one that's a little more expensive with a better warranty. As far as prices go, they're all over the place. When I was putting my white car back together and it sat for about two years, I needed a new battery. So I went to all the local parts stores and they were 180, 190, 170. Went to the dealership and it was like 140 bucks with just as good of a warranty. So call the dealership, call your local parts places. This was Batteries Plus we were talking about. They seem to have pretty reasonable pricing. They also have a lot of locations, so if you're out of town with a dead battery, you're maybe likely to get help. Maybe not. Again, I don't have any love or hate for Batteries Plus. I know that's not a super sexy answer, but I hope that helps ease all that worry about batteries. Guys, it's a little bit simpler, especially when we're just getting a replacement one than if we're building a battery bank. When you're building a battery bank or things like that, do what Stephen Harris says. He knows more about batteries than I probably ever will in my life. So take his word on that. But when you're looking to just replace that battery in your vehicle, don't overcomplicate it. 
or worry that if you spend $10 more, you're going to get a really good battery or you got ripped off for $10 and you didn't need to spend that money. So good question, guys. Keep them coming. If you want to see more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Guys, have an awesome weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. All right, next up, I got a question for full-time farmer Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life podcast. And uh, this is on, you know, somebody's bought a homestead. They kind of want to get a jump start on it. They're not quite moving in just yet, and they want to have things ready so when they move in, uh, they're able to hit the ground running with maybe doing a little bit of pasture poultry or something like that. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. Today I've got a question from James, and he is getting ready to relocate, congratulations James, to a about a 1.6 acre homestead uh, located just outside of Memphis, Tennessee at the end of July this year, 2018, and he wants to know what would I suggest to do to prepare the uh, farmstead part-time in 2019. Um, some details is that he wants to begin farming on a small scale with broilers and pigs, like I've discussed on a couple of uh, previous grass-fed life episodes. Uh, he's also looking into possibly raising rabbits and is just open to any other direction that I might, you know, want to add that he consider uh, where, you know, he can produce stuff on his limited acreage. Um, he's also looking at purchasing our online course called Farm Business Essentials. And James, thanks for considering us there. Um, but he's, he's really wanting to know what to do. Now, the, 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 uh, the property itself, he says he's got about an acre of relatively flat open pasture that's in pretty decent quality behind the house. Uh, not a whole lot of obstructions and, and trees and things of that nature out there. So I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking pasture poultry a little bit here, James. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's also got some experience, he mentions, uh, raising, you know, quail for meat and eggs. Uh, and, you know, he's been doing, uh, some brooding and tractoring birds and, and things of that nature. So, uh, just a little bit of background there on James. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, James, um, from your experience standpoint and the size of your property, I think, Pasture poultry is definitely something you would want to consider. Um, obviously, that's going to be a, a you know part-time uh, side hustle with with an acre there, uh, but you can make some pretty good money on an acre of ground. Um, you know, you can raise at least in my neck of the woods here on an acre about 600 birds. Um, you know, you could also look at putting some pigs out there, although you mentioned you don't have a whole lot of trees. Personally, I like trees for shade. You'd have to maybe build some kind of a shade structure. Um, you, you could, you could run a few pigs out there. Don't get me wrong, but again, it's not going to be a huge operation. Um, I think really though, from, from what I hear you saying here, um, you, the, the thing I would tell you to do to start preparing your homestead, and this is the thing that gets overlooked, is you really need to walk through a, a personal, holistic context evaluation and assessment to really give yourself some direction and, and figure out, like, okay, what, what are my goals? You know, is my goal to just farm, uh, farm part-time? Uh, do I really want to try and go full-time? Because if you're talking full-time, uh, well, animals could definitely be a, a part of the uh, the mix here, but you really you'd have to look at something more like a veg operation, or you know, there's some other things you could look at microgreens, mushrooms, things of that nature that would uh, you know take up less space on the land, but have a higher value, a higher return on a smaller footprint. 
Um, but I, I don't know if you're wanting to farm full time. Maybe you just want to do this, you know, part time on the side. Maybe you've got a phenomenal job that there's no way you're ever going to walk away from that. So those are the kinds of questions you need to answer. You also need to, um, you know, involve any other decision makers in this process. You don't mention, you know, if you're married, if you have kids, um, if, uh, you know, there's a, a business partner involved or, or, or whatever the case may be, but any decision makers have got to be involved uh, in this. And, you know, this is actually something you mentioned the Farm Business Essentials course. We've got a whole module that um, a good friend and partner, uh, Diego Footer, does on holistic context to help people walk through and do a very base level evaluation and assessment to see you know, where they're at in terms of, you know, uh, what they can invest in terms of time, money, uh, what, you know, they want to do, what they want to get out of this, what any other decision makers want to get out of this. Um, Diego's also had uh, some really great podcasts with someone that I've really grown to deeply respect uh, in, in this little niche with Javin Bernakovich. And you could you could find those. Uh, I believe on the Permaculture Voices podcast, but um, Javin does a lot of of teaching and consulting on holistic context, and I, I would also tell you to listen to those um, and just to try to get some direction, you know, about like what it is you want to accomplish with this homestead. And James, this is an investment of time. Uh, all this stuff I'm talking about, unless you you know want to do a, an actual paid consult with Javin uh, or Diego. Uh, you know, to this end, this isn't going to cost you anything, but it sure could save you a whole lot of money if you'll take the time to figure out exactly where it is you want to go with your new property, um, you know, to uh, assess things and make sure you don't spend money, uh, you know, putting up fence for pigs if your pigs really aren't something you're, you're passionate about or interested in. While they could fit on your property. Uh, that doesn't mean that they will fit in your life. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that we, we try and add within Farm Business Essentials. Uh, and, and also on top of that, like, you know, the finance aspect of it. Again, Diego coming out of the finance industry walks people through all those types of things to make sure you're not getting in over your head that you have a plan. Um, you know, that, uh, everything is, is set aside. It's separate. It's, you run it as a business. You set it up properly. All that good stuff. So anyway, those are some things to think about initially. Now, if it was me and you're just wanting to farm part time on the side, make some extra money to, uh, take a nice vacation, pay off some debt, uh, you know, put into a college fund or whatever. Uh, pasture and poultry, man. I mean, you know, this, this property, if, uh, you said 1.6 acres, uh, if we could use 1.5 acres of this, I think, you know, you're, you're looking at running seven, 800 birds over the course of a season. Um, if you can direct sell and retail those, and again, I can only speak from my vantage point. Um, you know, if you can profit on the low end, $10 a bird, if you're, if you're parting them out and retailing Every last piece, which is not always possible, particularly early on, you got to build up a customer list. Uh, you could legitimately be looking at a fifteen to sixteen dollar profit per bird, and that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's some pretty serious money. You could also look at adding a small vegetable operation. Um, so I, I think there's a lot you can do there, but I think really what I would tell you to focus on is is the planning 
not so much the, you know, uh, preparation of the homestead itself. Now, if you do settle on pasture poultry, by all means, start, uh, building your brooder and, uh, building some chicken tractors. Uh, we, we've got plans for those in the course as well. So, um, that's, that's my thought, uh, James, is to first do that personal assessment and make sure that you're, you're getting your compass pointed in the right direction before you spend any uh, time, energy, and money, which are very, very limited resources, uh, on physical stuff. Um, so yeah, that's my two cents. I hope you find that helpful. Um, for the rest of you, if you find this kind of stuff interesting, Check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. Over 100 episodes out uh, on the website now, grassfedlife.co. Again, that's grassfedlife.co. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, you can you can listen uh, to that podcast. We're currently taking a short hiatus. We're actually working on filming another project that's going to be going into our Farm Business Essentials course this fall. It'll be going into our Pasture Poultry course and also be standalone. We're working on that this summer, uh, and that is how to uh, process poultry on farm, everything you need to know about that. So you can watch for updates on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, hey, keep the questions coming, guys. I really appreciate you sending them in. Always happy to answer them. Uh, hope you found this helpful. And, James, if you got more questions, feel free to shoot me an email, darby at grassfedlife.co. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. A few additional thoughts I have on this. So Darby really is talking about, like, an evaluation and design and, and the theoretical concepts more than what you can do on a property. But then when he did talk about some things you can do on the property, he stuck to things that are infrastructure-based, a brooder, chicken tractor, etc. I think this is fantastic advice for the majority of you guys that have property that you're going to be moving to. You already own it, you already have control of it, but you're not there yet. I did this myself in Arkansas, and I will tell you what I think you should generally avoid. You should generally avoid trying to plant things. Um, now, if you want to do some stuns with some trees or something like that, marks you know sheer total utter neglect, and get a bunch of cheap saplings and plant them on a piece of it and let it go, sure. But when you plant stuff, things go wrong. If I had a piece of property right now that I was going to be moving to, I would be concerned with with water. And, 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 and setting up things like irrigation zones and water delivery to different parts of the property, beginning a basic map of the property and how it was going to be. And if I'm going to do fencing, I'm going to do temporary fencing. And one of my heroes in agriculture is Joel Salatin. And here was what he said at a seminar that I attended about fencing. Put in temporary fencing for pigs, chickens, whatever. If, if that temporary low-cost fence is still there in three years and it's about to fall apart and you're still happy with where that fence is, go ahead and put your permanent fencing in. And until that fence has been there three years, don't even think about investing in full-time fencing. Put, put rebar in, a couple strands of electric wire, that'll keep pigs in. Use electronet for your chickens. Don't put fence in and spend big money on it unless it's maybe overall perimeter fence or maybe a cross fence or two. But when it comes down to really getting you know, down into paddocks and stuff like that, don't do it. Because if the infrastructure is portable, your farm is portable. And I know that a lot of you guys that are doing the small farmstead thing, like 1.3 acres, I think it's a, or 1.6 acres, I think it's a fantastic size for a homestead, by the way. I honestly think that one to two acres is probably the best size for the most people on a homestead. 
even if you get 50 acres of wooded land to hunt and fish on, I think one, one to two acres that you actually manage as a homestead, that's probably better. Most people, unless you're doing cattle or something, you're going to actually cause yourself trouble by going bigger. Three acres is more than I can handle here. I've got some unique challenges, but still, seriously, I mean, um, the more I've narrowed my focus to smaller, smaller areas, the more production I've gotten. Crazy, I know. Um, but you can definitely make some money on a piece of property that size, and you may end up putting in um, some true paddocks to control birds. This is what we did with our ducks. But we did very temporary style fencing. I did you know, cheap T-posts, three-foot-high fence, uh, and, and center blocks. And I would have done even lower tech if you could pound a damn stake in the ground here, but I couldn't. So the reason you want to keep things, though, portable, even though you're maybe not a Joel Sal that's going to do 20,000 birds a year or something, you know, I'm not really going to have a farm. I want a little farmstead. You never know when you'll move. And a lot of things that we do as farmsteaders that we think is fantastic, the person moving in may not be in love with. So if you get all this fencing you have to tear out because they don't like it, um, it's a waste. But if it can go wherever you go next, it's not. So focus on in infrastructure, but when it comes to fencing, other than perimeter fencing, I, I love Joel's rule. If it ain't been there for three years, don't make it permanent unless you really, really, really know why you're doing that. It's a lot of money. All right, next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris uh, on battery-powered fans. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris, and I'm calling in to answer your question. Today's show is going to be about fans of Stephen Harris. No, not as in fans of Stephen Harris Fan Club. It's about the fans of Stephen Harris, as in the air-moving fans I have to keep me cool. And, you know, I, I get a lot of emails from people with stuff and some really dumb questions. Jake. <laughs> yeah, Jake knows I love him. He's the best. But um, sometimes they just stick out in my mind. And I went back through my notes. It's like, where's that question? And it was a guy who wrote in it. I want to do a simple one today. It's a simple little subject. It's not a hard one, but it's going to make some people go, oh, I didn't think of that. And uh, someday, if this is keeping you cool, you'll be saying, thank you, Steve. And I'll be saying, you're welcome. So anyways, this guy wrote to me. He says he's got an RV, and it's a rather simple one. And I guess he just basically has the main starting battery for it. Doesn't have a separate battery for it. Doesn't have a generator, solar panels, any other power source. And he likes, him and his wife like to boondock, which is RV terminology for going off the grid. No electricity, no water, no sewage, only what you got. And he wants to know what to run as a fan and i'm going eh, eh, you got a battery a motor and gasoline you, you you got all of the fan power you could possibly want in the rv but maybe his battery is unknown quality and he might not want to spend a 100 bucks or 200 bucks on a new one or you might be stuck in a situation like this and 
my first answer is you want a small inverter, you know, like a 200 watt inverter, and you go to Walmart, Walgreens, or some place, and you find like these six or eight inch fans that you can clip onto something, then you plug into the wall, and they only draw like five watts. It's it's about nothing, and you use that to cool yourself. Like I tell people, you don't cool the house to cool the room to cool the person. You cool the person. And in this case, you don't just cool the person. You cool the face of the person. So you get a fan and inverter. Now, it's going to be a box fan, a fan on a pedestal. It can be a clip-on fan that's even smaller. But he really wanted to to know he had a thing he said steve talk to me about battery powered fans and usb fans well if you haven't seen them on amazon there are some of these fans and i'm holding one right now and it's about i'm sorry was that making noise i'm holding one right now and it's about one two three six inches wide and it's all plastic and it runs off of four double a's has three variable speeds on it, and it has a USB plug. So I can plug this into my iMuto 30,000 milliamp hour battery and have a whole bunch of power for it and not really have to worry about leaving the thing on all night. Plus, this one takes four AA's, and you want a battery. You want a small fan that has two things. Well, want three things. One, you want people on Amazon saying, oh, this fan is powerful. Oh, this thing is nice. Not going, it's wimpy, it's wimpy. Because I got some fans that I bought and they're, they're, they're wimpy. Uh, you got the thing three inches from your face and it's like, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling this. So, um, you want one on from Amazon. I can't really give you a good one because some of mine are a year or more old. But you want one with good reviews on Amazon. You want it to take USB power. Uh, either they'll have a regular USB to micro USB port on it, or they'll have a USB to a special plug on it and just don't lose the cord. And uh, they will take either 18650s or they will take double A's, usually four double A's. I actually got one that takes eight D cells. And the 4AA actually blows better than the 8D cell one. And the 8D cell one is an O2 cool one, which is like a good brand of one. And I've used it in my bug out trailer because I got like a little mini office in there. And sometimes I just want to enjoy the day. And I sit out in the bug out trailer and do my computer work. And I'm going, this thing's wimpy. But I've been using these other fans, especially since I knew I was going to be answering this. So I got all the fans out, all my fans. And I've been playing with them. It's like this one, this one, that one. So anyways, there are fans. This one's a little pedestal fan, and it tilts up and down. I got another one, almost as good as this one, and it's got like a big clamp on it. And it's got it's got a soft spring, so it's not hard to open. It's got rubber footies on the inside of the clamp. And then the... Uh, fan rotates in two dimensions. It rotates not only all the way around, but it rotates all the way through like a globe. So you can basically clamp it onto anything and point it at yourself. I mean, literally, I can clamp it on top of my laptop and have a point right at my face, whether my face is above the laptop or below the screen. As I am right now, I'm actually laying back in a chair with my laptop on me, and I'd be pointing down. So those are the things to look for in a USB fan. Good reviews saying, yeah, blows good. 
takes a battery, and it takes USB. Now, because it's got a battery in it, it will still run on USB without a battery. I've done all my battery fans without batteries with just USB. I can't tell you how nice it is to have a 30,000 or 20,000 iMuto, that's I-M-U-T-O, battery. They're on Amazon, T-Spasm. Harris most definitely friggin' approved. Uh, So I prefer to run it off a USB battery, but, I mean, it's like, if it's AA or 18650, I've taught you guys about recharging those, and that's good, because you might be like me the other day. I didn't want to find the cable and plug it in. I just put some rechargeable batteries into it and put it on the desk, and it blew on me for six hours, and the battery never died, and I didn't test to see how long the battery worked. But these little fans, okay, like this little one right here, it's got to be blowing on your face. Okay, and when it's sitting on the board that the laptop is on, it's about 18, 24 inches from me, and it's blowing an, an okay breeze on me. And But if I had my druthers, and like I was trying to sleep, this thing would be where it is right now, and that's about one foot away from me. I mean, when this thing is one foot away from my face, and my neck, it really blows on me, and I go, that's nice. It feels good. And let me tell you, in my house and in my trailer, it can get warm because I don't have central air conditioning. I got air conditioning in the trailer, but I don't always run it. Sometimes I do go with just a fan so I can experience the day and see how would I stay cool without air conditioning and just a fan. Yeah, I'm crazy, okay? I do experiments like this for the experience so I can pass them on to you. Not just real-world stuff. I make fake real-world stuff and do it and test it and bring it to you. So that's the thing about small USB fans and really small fans. And you might want these when you're bugging out. You might want these when you're camping. I mean, these fans are durable and they're light, You would consider taking these with you if you were a backpacker and you were going to be in a tent and you really wanted some fan breeze on you. Oh, that one with the clip? The clip also acts as a base. So it's canted at 33 degrees, but it still will sit down flat and you can point the thing at you. It's kind of neat. Yeah, you might take these if you were backpacking. If you were an ultra-lightweight person, you never would do it, but... If you were just a light rake or, or a regular packer, you would. They work nice. They definitely improve your quality of your sleep, most definitely. Especially when you get that stagnant hot air like you do in a tent or at night when there's no breeze. That, that breeze on your face. I, it, when I worked at Chrysler and we were doing HVAC stuff, There are literally encyclopedias written on the cooling, perceived cooling ability of cold air being blown on someone's face. In fact, there's a whole test we run. It's called a suck-down test. No, don't giggle. But anyways, it's when you take a car at 120 degrees, you put it into the wind tunnel at 120 degrees, and you start the thing up, and you start driving a city cycle on it, and you measure how long it takes for that AC to suck down the temperature of the car. 
Well, the first thing we do and we have available to the people is to put a lot of air through different vents, usually two per person, onto their face. And when you have people sitting in a vehicle with a dial that goes between 1 and 10 to say how comfortable they are, the second, even though they're in a 120-degree car, if they get cold AC, as in 42-degree AC, blowing on their face within 10 seconds, that dial goes up close to 10 pretty good. So they're 100 degrees. They're in a 120-degree car. They're wearing clothes. The sun's coming in. But if that air is on their face... They are pleasant. So there's a lot of science behind it. And if you want to get colder, put a cloth or a towel around your neck with some water on it and or wipe your face with a towel with water on it and let the air blow over that to get to cool you down. That works. So good reviews, airflow, a type of battery of some type, and USB powered. And you can get them for $15 and less on Amazon. And I hope that helps you. And don't forget about Bug Out Show number eight coming up on Tuesday with Jack. Should be a fun one. Talk to you guys later. Oh, everything I do, Stephen1234.com. See you later. Thanks for, thanks, thanks to my fan club. Bye. So I guess my only addition to this is if you're trying to cool a person with very small fans, the face is good. The, the best thing I can tell you when it comes to cooling someone is the back of the neck. If I wanted to, like, let's say that I had to work in this office of mine and for some reason I couldn't keep it as cool as I like, um, I would probably rig something up with a couple of little fans, 45-degree angle each, be blown on the back side of my neck. Um, that, to me, is the number one way to cool a human being. Uh, the face works, too. So just, if you're ever building a human cooling area, Ventilation around the neck and the throat is huge. And I'll tell you what, there was a buddy of mine, this real redneck buddy, and his name was Chris. And he used to say, you know, when you're out working in the rain, you never really wet until that one drop of water slides down the crack of your butt. And then you're wet and then you're miserable. I think when it comes to being hot, you're never really completely miserable until you get those drops of sweat in your neck, right? I mean, that's just, like, if I'm sleeping and my wife's insisted that it's too cold in the house and she's jacked up the temperature on the thermostat and I'm not completely comfortable, I'll sleep on top of the covers, I'm fine, I'll let it go. You know, differences in men and women with body temperature, it's a thing, I, I got it. If I'm laying there and all of a sudden I reach up and my neck is sweaty, that thermostat's going down, so keep the neck cool and dry, and the person generally feels pretty good, too. That brings us to our final segment today. It's going to be a shorter one than I usually do, but I thought this was really interesting. And I decided as soon as I read it that I would give it to you on a Friday, because it's a good thing to take through your weekend as you're planning your life. This comes from Brian. It's about artichokes. And he says, I have a comment about looking at things from a different perspective. We planted some artichokes a few years ago. And they generally sell like hotcakes at our farmer's market. We've been very happy with them. Once they get established, they're a perennial, and I really don't do anything with them except harvesting. Depending on the size, we get 2 to $3 each. This year, due to the weather getting hot so fast, we had a bunch of them go from just about almost ready to past ready with the buds opening between markets. 
I was somewhat unhappy since there were eight to ten dozen heads this way. But they make such pretty flour, I figured I'd just let them go and harvest the seeds. After they started blooming, one of my restaurants was wanting something different for flowers. So I mentioned the artichokes. They were thrilled and took most of what was available at the time for $6 a single bud and a stem with multiple buds for $8. I continued selling some flowers at the market for the same price. At the time, I was discussing with my wife that I wish all our mistakes had turned out so well. So after a bit, we decided to let the rest go to seed. Today, I started harvesting those seeds. I got 1,650 seeds out of nine or of the 30 or so artichoke heads I have left. Looking around online, it looks like I can sell seeds for between $2 and $3 for a package of 30 seeds, which comes in to $12 to $18 an artichoke. I just thought it was interesting that selling them for what most people would, the vegetable, makes me the least amount of money. And the longer I wait, the more money they're worth. It just makes me start thinking about what else could be that way. We're selling earlier or later than what is considered normal brings the higher ROI. Just wanted to toss that out there for a thought experiment, Brian. Brian, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And it, 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 my mind just starts going literally in a hundred different directions of ways that I've seen this play out. But I think it's important to, to, to put some temperance into things like that with why. Like, if you can make $8 for selling an artichoke flour versus $2 for selling an artichoke, why the hell do people grow artichokes instead of artichoke flowers? And it's a couple things. One, the market size is limited. And the, the, the life cycle of the product is different. What I mean by that is once artichokes are to the size that you want them for eating and you cut them, they store pretty well. They store pretty well. And when you have an artichoke flower, as you know, you can put it in water or something, it has a limited life. Like all flowers that you buy cut flowers, it has a life expectancy. And then only so many people want to grow artichokes, so there's a limited market for seeds. And there's no shortage of artichoke seeds out there. So if you're a farmer and you're farming 100 acres of, of something, or even, let's say, 5 acres or something, you can grow a lot of artichokes on 5 acres in the right climate. And those artichokes, you know, they're not mostly selling directly to restaurants and stuff like you are in farmer's markets and small consumer markets. They can load a truckload of those things up and get a price for them. And they're selling a commodity. And then you're selling with a commodity, a niche within a commodity. Uh, locally grown, farmer's market, people love farmer's markets. Restaurants that want to say we have locally grown artichoke hearts and stuff like that. And then you're getting a niche of the niche. Now you got flowers and then you got seeds. So in most of these examples, these are what you look at as incremental revenue. They're generally not solid revenue models in of themselves, but they are great incremental revenue. You might find that it makes sense to plant more artichokes and talk to all your restaurants and stuff like that and, and see what you can do uh, going forward with having plans to be delivering flowers to restaurants or other locations in the future and even increase that incremental revenue more. And in an operation your size, that revenue may eventually outweigh the food production completely. But you'll still want to sell the food. 
So, you know, it's, it's a, like I said, a perennial product and, and what have you. The more difficult thing might be selling the seeds online. I don't know, but you can certainly try. Why not? Um, if you sold the seeds for half price of what everybody else does by putting more in a packet, you're still making good money, and it's cheap to ship, and it ships well. So, I mean, there's, that's another source of revenue there, right? Some other things that are like this. Uh, one of the things that, that my buddy David and I talked to people about with aquaponics is grow koi. I know you can't eat them, but you know you can sell a decent butterfly koi for anywhere between seventy and three hundred dollars. And I've had people email me on this and go, "Jag, no, you can't because if you don't have a trophy, now listen, listen. If you put a beautiful looking butterfly koi on Craigslist, you can easily get a couple hundred bucks for it." Or at least a hundred and a half, if you live in a market where people do water gardens and stuff like that. And it doesn't matter that it's not perfect; it just matters that it looks really beautiful and it's good. But you can't sell a hundred of them. But you can sell two or three a year. Now, if you look at an ROI perspective on this versus growing something like tilapia or bluegill or trout or anything, and you think about it this way. I'm going to go get some koi that I pay about 6 to 10 bucks for because I'm going to get the best of what's available. I'm going to put them in this tank, and I'm going to use their waste to produce food for a couple of years. And they're going to be very inexpensive to feed because during the warm part of the year, I'm going to grow things like salvinia and duckweed. I'm going to feed them what grows in the same tank with them. And they're going to help keep my tanks clean because they really do. The tanks I have that are absent koi or, or goldfish generally have a lot more algae problems than the ones with koi and have almost none. They graze like cattle on the stuff. So they're going to help maintain my system. They're going to be very cheap to feed, and uh, they're going to provide waste for my system that's going to grow plants. And the pump's running anyway. Whether that's a koi in there or a tilapia, that pump's running anyway. And then once a year, I'm going to sell one fish for $150. I can buy a lot of tilapia with $150. But more importantly, all the other fishing that I'm producing for my own use, I can pay for at least half the feed for the year out of the average system, if not more. Sometimes I can pay for all the feed by selling one koi. Now, again, I'm not going to go in the koi business. And if you go in that business, then you're talking about the really high end and they're dumping the low-grade stuff into the pesticides. I get all that. But that's just another example of how you can take something and, and, and add one little bit of finesse to it. And when you do this throughout your life, you can literally change your, your retirement by hundreds of thousands of dollars if that money is either redirected there or the money that you are earning is used to offset expenses that then go there. And it's this, this little incremental way about thinking about things. And when you start looking at that, you realize there's literally money everywhere. So I talked to one guy around here locally. He said, you know what I'm doing? I'm selling Jerusalem artichokes like crazy for a couple of months out of the year when people are buying them for seed on eBay. I said, well, that's cool. You're growing them in the backyard? He goes, oh, hell no. He goes, I grow some in the backyard, but I do what you do. I leave them in my, my beds, and I just pull them out as I need them to eat them. And then there's always enough in the year they grow back. I don't, I don't have time to be like that. I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I go down to Whole Foods. And I buy them there. And I sell them as organic artichoke seeds. And I mark them up about two times what they cost me at the store. Because I'm buying them at a food price and selling them at a feed price. And I never keep any on hand. And I just make sure they're in stock when my ads are running. 
and I go down to the market and I pick them up as they're ordered. I go down once a week and fill all my orders for the week. And I don't make a lot of money, but it's extra money. It's like free money. And it, you know, he says it's paying for most of my, my grocery bill for those months. See, it's just, it, it's about understanding opportunity. It's the same thing I talked about recently. I don't remember what episode it was. We were talking about, you know, business might have been with Nicole. And how many people I've heard talk to me about they're going to set up a farm or a farmstead and they're going to start delivering food locally for direct consumer sales channel. I'm like, well, is anybody growing food in your area now? Yeah, well, go do it now. Go do that now. Maybe it'll pay for your farm. Or at least the infrastructure on your farm. Maybe you'll figure out you don't like farming. What you really like is making good quality food available to people on a local level, and you can do something that the, the growers and producers can't. And, and, and that is what Brian did here. He looked for the opportunity. And I think that one of the biggest things that we have in, in, as a problem in our country today is... It's good to value hard work, but it's but if you're working hard at the wrong things, you're not going to get anywhere. And we have people that are very, you know, they're very well-meaning. Most of the people on the left, I'm talking about the loony left on TV, right? I'm talking about the people that come down and say, I'm a Democrat, you know, and they're just like you. They live in the same street as you. Generally, they mean well. And, and what they'll say is, look at these people that work so hard and have so little. Well, you know... I've told the story before, but there was a time I was doing a podcast and there was a fly on my windowsill trying like crazy to go through that window. And he couldn't get through it, but he was doing everything he could to get through that window. You know, And if I just left him there, he's so convinced, because he can see through there that that's where he's supposed to go, that he'll die trying. Because what he's trying is the wrong thing. And if he flew through the house and waited, he'd wait for a door to open and boom, he's out. Or he could go find something to do in the house until I killed him with a bug assault gun or something. But you know, anything would be better than working so hard at the wrong thing. And the reason people that build wealth and happiness and efficiencies into their lives look like they're doing it easy is because on some levels, not all of us, some levels they are. They work hard, but they work hard at the right things. And when something doesn't go right, they don't keep pushing against it. They say, now what, what, what can I do with this? What is, what is the real opportunity here? And sometimes you can just kind of fall into it. And it seems like, to be fair, Brian on some level fell into it, has a conversation. Hey, yeah, we were looking at some flowers. Hey, I got some flowers. But if you, I, I guarantee you, if Brian's mind was not in the right place, the, the, the question would have been like, well, what kind of flowers do you want? Oh, I was thinking of Sertiums. I don't have those. Maybe I can find you somebody that does. And it's all well-meaning. And he might have even went and worked really, really hard, um, super hard, at trying to help the guy. But he probably didn't have to work very hard at all to go, gee, I'll just cut these flowers and bring them to him. So he could have worked harder trying to do something that seems like the right thing and it wasn't really beneficial to him. And this is not a predatory mindset because the restaurants buying the flowers for their display and the people buying the flowers at the farmer's market were happy to have something unique and different. And they were more than willing to pay for it. He didn't hold a gun to their head and make them pay for it. So, And this is what happens when the mind is switched on to see the opportunity. And not just the opportunity, but to see the solution. So whenever there's a problem, it is by its very nature an opportunity.
And you'll see in that solution, when you say, well, what's the solution to A? Most people think the solution to A is B. A and B equals C, right? Something like that. You say, so for each problem, there is a solution. No, for every problem, there's multiple solutions. And our, 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 our opportunity lies in figuring out how to get the largest result with the least effort. So these, these, these restaurants, for instance, that Brian was talking to when they wanted a unique flower, a solution would have been to be like, well, what would you like to have that you don't? And they might have given him a list of flowers. He might have said, well, you know, two or three of those grow pretty well here. I could start growing those for you next year. That is a solution, and both parties do benefit. But it requires breaking new ground, giving up grow area for the artichokes, a, a time delay where the solution is, well, hell, if I get more for an artichoke by letting it turn into a flower, how many do you need? See, that is the simplicity. And that is why people look at people that are successful in life and seem to think, oh, they have some kind of Midas touch or they're just lucky. It has nothing to do with it. Luck is the proper or the optimal response to a given situation. That's what luck is. Because things happen every day to people that would be lucky for one person, they end up being incredibly unlucky for another person. Classic example, somebody wins the lottery, and three years later their life is worse for it. It happens all the time. I know that's the extreme example, but it's in the extreme example that we understand the everyday misfortunes that are seen as bad luck that are the improper response. The improper response to a situation. Because... Every adversity has the potential for success. If they did, and there's a whole bunch of books would have never been written. And what you'll find a lot of times is that an author of a book about overcoming adversity will generally not exaggerate their triumph. But when somebody takes a critical look at them, what do they actually over-exaggerate? Their adversity. Their adversity, how bad it really was to be them at their lowest state. They'll actually say it was worse than it was because their opportunity was taking the adversity into a triumph and telling that story. So if that exists, then in every adversity, every problem, every situation, there's a decision that is the most optimum decision we can make under the circumstances. And sometimes that's still not good, how to treat cancer, especially if it's terminal and we're not going to win. Right, so it's not all. It's not. This is not rose-colored glasses thinking. This is simply systems thinking applied to opportunity thinking, and the two of those working together. So, I think it'd be a good project this weekend as you're going through your lives, and don't don't make this laborious. Whenever I give you these little weekend projects, don't make them laborious. Just put it in the back of your mind. What problems, situations, etc., am I encountering? What are all of the responses to them? And which one does the most for the best good with the least effort? And you might find yourself turning a $2 artichoke into $18 worth of seeds or an $8 flower. That's a pretty interesting way to look at things. And I thank you, Brian, for sending that one in to us. With that, hey, guys, if, if you want to help support this show, one of the easy ways that you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And if you usually skip this segment, please don't today. Don't just skip ahead to the song of the day. I, 
This is a product that I covered earlier this year. A bunch of you guys bought it. I, I've heard no complaints from anybody. I think well over 200 of you bought this product. And it's because I, I think I made it sound so important because it is the last time I covered it. It is the bristle-free grill brush by a company called Gven, G-V-E-N. And this is a, a, a stainless steel brush. It has like a spiral pattern on it. It's for cleaning grill surfaces. And, okay, it cleans grills. It does a good job. And, and I know that in itself is just a little bit boring, and you probably go, well, you clean your grill. When I brought this to you, it's because I saw an episode um, of, a, of a series called Untold Stories of the ER, which my wife loves. And there was this family, and this the, the son ended up in incredible abdominal pain. And at first, the, the, the ER people think maybe he's faking to look for drugs, and they realize he's not. He's in serious pain. There's something wrong. They can't figure out what it is. When they do some imaging, eventually they find his small intestine is like twisted in knots. And they're not sure what it is, but when they look at some of the imaging, they see this little bright thing, little bright hair-shaped thing. And the father sees it and knew exactly what it was immediately. It was a bristle from a grill brush, and they had cooked earlier that week on the grill. And it was a pretty serious surgery to untangle this knot, because it had pierced through the intestinal wall and twisted around the other intestines. And then it turned out that this was actually a much bigger problem than people realized, and that there is a, a great deal of, of problem with this. I have... a. A video that I included in the first review with a guy named David Grand. He's a doctor and radiologist for Rhode Island Hospital. And he told a story of like half a dozen people over two years in one hospital. So this is a lot more common than a lot of other things people worry about. This seems to be way more common than getting bit by a venomous snake, for instance. And it's completely avoidable. It's You know, venomous snakes, it's like 90% or more of bites are avoidable, but... Venomous snakes is a risk thing in places where they live. It's not 100% avoidable. This is 100% avoidable. You just don't use the wrong brush. Now, the reason I brought it back today is I realized when I looked at the reviews, most people were happy, but there were some negative reviews that said, this doesn't work good enough. It doesn't get enough of the stuff off the grill, etc. And it's because people don't know how to use things. So I added a video today showing me using this brush on my own grill. And basically the concept is don't try to use it on a cold grill that's been sitting there for a couple days with a bunch of caked on crap. As soon as you're done cooking, take it to the grill. It knocks everything off. To prove it, I left some sticky, gooey stuff that had been on my grill uh, for a couple days from some uh, pork tenderloin I'd cooked. Uh, and then I just heated the grill up and, and, and took it to it. And I also talk a little bit in the video about like people trying to clean grills in ways that doesn't make any sense. Um, for God's sakes, it's a grill top. It, it, it's going to be 300, 400, or 500 degrees or more when you cook on it. You don't have to worry about germs. You know, germaphobes annoy me. And, and you don't want to clean your grill top till there's nothing left on it. You want a patina on there. That's what creates that nonstick wonderful surface. So check the video out. But, but seriously, if you grill and you clean your grill with a brush, if you have another way you clean your, your grill and you're happy with it, don't go get this thing. But if you clean your grill with a brush, please... Go look at this today. I'm, I'm serious. The fact that maybe one person in this audience would be spared uh, an expensive and miserable trip with your family to the emergency room is worth me doing this, not just as an item of the day, but as a public service message. On that note, you can find it at tspaz, tspaz.com. And when you shop online at tspaz, 
You support this show no matter what you buy. Please remember that. That brings us to our song of the day. And boy, this is a good song. Um, this song is called Chill Axin. Chill A-X-I-N. Chill Axin. Two words. It's by Toby Keith. And it's it, it's kind of a vibe that I think a lot of country singers have done today. And this, when I say today, I mean over the last 10, 15 years. It's a little Jimmy Buffett-like. You know, it's a tropical thing, feeling in it and getting away to the beach and and what have you. And, you know, I, I think there's, you know, I, I obviously it wasn't a hard sell to get me to play this song. But unlike a lot of artists, I, I, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff now. I think that people do this just to try to get Jimmy Buffett to sing a song with them because uh, they know it'll be a guaranteed hit if they can pull Jimmy out of semi-retirement and get him to be uh, part of what they're doing. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case at all here. Here's the story behind it. Uh, Toby Keith penned this song with singer-songwriter Sammy Emmerich. The pair have collaborated on a number of Keith's hits, including his 2001 number one hit, I'm Just Talking About Tonight. Emmerich has done all of Keith's USO tours with him, and they wrote this song on a bus during a two-day stop in South Korea on their way to Afghanistan. Keith recalled we were going from A to B or B to C or wherever the hell we were going. He had this idea, and we wanted to write a little cool song called Chillaxin. It's about finding a little piece of mind somewhere where I can just kick all the way back. You know, and when I was listening to this song today, I realized something. I've been talking for two years about taking a Texas coast trip, uh, going down maybe doing a weekend of surf fishing or maybe figuring a way to take off some time in the middle of the week when there's less people there and just fishing on the coast, kind of like I did in Florida. But, my God, it's only five-hour drive south of here, and I'm on the Texas coast, and it is Texas, and I kind of like that. And uh, I need to do this once in a while. I need to do a lot more things like that in my life, and you probably do too. So while I gave you the kind of the assignment of thinking about the opportunities that exist out there today, also look for those opportunities that allow you to unplug and really enjoy yourself. I hope you do that in some way this weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. High tides up, water's coming in on the shore. Usually waiting till vacation, but a show can't take your city anymore. Work's been hell. That rush hour traffic's never been a breeze Ain't no hustle where I'm going Just a bone trade wind blowing through the trees I don't need no sympathy That won't bring satisfaction Just need to charge my battery Bad reaction Gonna do my best To decompress Chillaxin' I could fire up my old motorcycle And head up to the country where it's green Maybe head up to Montana But there's something about the ocean that's serene Got 700 left to do But it don't seem like forever When you know 
Take a city anymore. 